Chapter 6 of The Romance of Modern Electricity. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rick Cordray. The Romance of Modern Electricity by Charles R. Gibson. Chapter 6 How We Came to Have the Telegraph. A Highlander's Amusing Explanation man's earliest method of signaling, the first really practical electric telegraph, an American rival which came to stay, an instrument to record the telegraph signals received, why a complete circuit is required for an electric current, how one wire can now be used. There is an amusing story in connection with the early days of the telegraph, which, whether real or fictitious, will serve to illustrate a point of much importance. One Scottish Highlander is said to have asked another how the telegraph worked, whereupon the second one replied that he didn't understand it, but he thought he could explain it, from which remark one would infer that he had some Irish blood in him. Finding a convenient illustration in his faithful collie, he asked his friend to imagine the dog stretching itself, and yet stretching itself, until its head reached Glasgow, while its hindquarters remained in Oban. If he were then to tramp upon the dog's tail, it would bark at the Glasgow end, but he was careful to add that as it was not very convenient to stretch a dog so great a distance, the telegraph folk put up a piece of wire, which seemed to act just as well. While the Highlander's explanation may not make the details of electric telegraphs very clear to us, Yet there is one point in the story which cannot be too well emphasized, and that is that there is a medium of communication between the two places, and this there always must be, even in the case of wireless telegraphy. Early in the world's history, man found it necessary to be able to signal to a distance, and so he adopted the method of lighting beacon fires upon the hilltops, and these signals could be passed on from one point to another. Of course, these men in ancient times had arranged with their distant friends that when a fire was seen upon the hilltop, it would mean a certain thing. When we moderns wish to communicate with our friends at a distance, we have to use prearranged signals in the same way. We find it convenient still to use visual signals for military and naval purposes, such as by the waving of flags. All such systems are limited necessarily to very short distances. When one sees a magnet turning first to one side and then to the other, according to the direction in which an electric current is sent through a coil, it is a very natural step from that to the first practical electric telegraph instrument. It is apparent that if one person had the coil and magnet in his house and another had the battery at his home, while the wires still connected the battery to the coil, the second person could cause the magnet beside the first to move to one side or the other at will, and by an agreed code, intelligible signals could be transmitted. The needle telegraph is just this coil and magnet, and nothing more, except that it is put into a more convenient form. The magnet is fixed to a spindle, passed through its center, and then mounted in a vertical position at the back of an upright board. The coil is then placed around it, leaving the needle free to fall to the right or left. 
then, so that the movements of the needle may be readily seen, an indicator or dummy needle is fixed on the other end of the spindle, which comes through to the front of the board. This indicator or needle moves, of course, along with the magnet at the back, and so the signals are clearly read. An arrangement for reversing the current at will in order to move the needle to one side or the other is added, and this may be operated by moving a handle from left to right, or by depressing one or other of two small levers or, quote, keys, unquote. It might be a matter of agreement to signal one movement of the needle for A, two for B, and so on, but the operator would very soon weary of this plan if he had many letters far on in the alphabet to count out. Imagine our written language being constructed thus, one vertical stroke for A, two for B, three for C, and so on. It's much more convenient to let two strokes leaning against each other with a third stroke crossing them stand for A. Three strokes placed thus for N, a vertical stroke, a slanted stroke, and a vertical stroke, and thus for Z, a horizontal stroke, a slanted stroke, and another horizontal stroke. And so in telegraphy it is agreed that if the needle is moved once to the left and then once to the right, this will signify A. It's quite remarkable that in order to construct the whole 26 letters of the alphabet, by combinations of these two movements, we never require to move the needle more than four times for any letter. It evidently did not occur to the experimenters at the outset that this could be done, as they made the early instruments with five needles in order to get a greater variety of signal, their idea being to make the needles point out the letters on a dial. Referring to the accompanying alphabet, a figure in the text, it will be seen that the letters most often in use get the advantage of the simplest signals. Once to the left stands for E, once to the right for T, and so on. It's usual to print the left-hand strokes shorter than the right-hand ones, as shown, but this is merely for convenience of space. Our own alphabet is a very simple construction. Give a boy four straight strips of cardboard, each representing a stroke, and he can with these construct more than half the alphabet, while a few semicircular pieces added will enable him to complete the whole 26 letters. While Cook and Wheatstone were the first, 1837, to set up a needle telegraph in this country, we cannot claim the invention for them, as Professor Ampere of Paris has suggested 15 years earlier that a magnet and coil placed at any distant point of a circuit would serve for the transmission of signals. And other experimenters in Germany had actually carried this out with success. Simple as this method is, there was a yet simpler plan adopted in New York about the same time as the former was set up in London. Knowing that an electromagnet would attract and let go at will, a piece of iron was suspended by a spring so that it stood close over the poles of the electromagnet. Whenever a current was sent along the wire to the electromagnet, it would attract the iron and hold onto it as long as the current was left on. But as soon as the circuit was broken, the magnet lost its power so that the iron was pulled away by the suspending spring. The movable piece of iron was mounted on one end of a small lever, the other end of which worked between two stops, so that each time the iron armature was attracted downwards, it caused the other end of this lever to click against the upper stop, and by this means signals or intelligible raps were made. 
if the lever clicked against the upper stop and then immediately fell back onto the lower stop, that indicated the letter E. But if after striking the upper stop, it remained a little before falling back on the other stop, then the letter T was signaled. If the lever gave three quick successive clicks, the letter S was to be understood, and so on. This method saves the trouble of reversing the current, which was necessary in the needle telegraph. All that is required in this American invention is to make and break the current's path. While this system of telegraphy had been suggested by a great American scientist, Henry, as early as 1831, it was not until 1837 that another American, Morse, brought the instrument into practical use. Working by clicks, it is called the, quote, Morse sounder, unquote. Morse also arranged that the instrument should record the signals received by marking them on a strip of paper, and this has been termed a, quote, Morse inker, unquote. If one end of the armature lever is fitted with a small wheel, which when at rest dips into a small inkwell, and if, instead of coming in contact with a stop when raised, the wheel touches a paper ribbon, which is kept in motion by clockwork, then a mark will be made along the center of the paper as long as the wheel is held up by the magnet at the other end of the lever. It is therefore an easy matter to make long or short strokes at will by keeping the current on for different lengths of time. That is all this instrument can do, make short and long strokes, usually called dots and dashes, and the alphabet is made up by different combinations of these. The letters E and T being used oftener than any other letters, get the advantage of a single short stroke for E and a single long stroke for T, as will be seen from the accompanying alphabet in the text. It will be noticed on comparing the Morse and the needle alphabets that they are really identical, a short stroke or dot being equivalent to the needle falling to the left, and a long stroke or dash to a needle movement to the right hand. With constant practice, this alphabet becomes as natural to the operator as our everyday ABC. And I have heard of two telegraph operators carrying on a silent conversation with each other by a slight movement of the left and right eyes. Underneath the Morse alphabet in the text will be found a short sentence of two words, which may be easily deciphered. A bald statement that an electric current must always have a complete circuit does not appeal very forcibly to many minds. I have seen people quite at sea in trying to arrange a simple electric circuit, such as connecting up a bell, push, and battery. There need not be the very slightest confusion if one clearly keeps in mind what is taking place when a battery sends a current of electricity along a wire. All that the battery does is to cause an electric current to pass from its carbon plate to its companion zinc. We fix a short wire across from the one plate to the other, and an electric current passes along the wire on its way from the carbon to the zinc. We may make the wire a mile long, or as long as we please, and the current must pass by this route on its way from the one plate to the other. If we carry the wire to land's end and back, then before the current can get from the carbon to its close neighbor, the zinc plate, it is forced to travel via land's end. If the wire circuit is broken at any place, the current immediately ceases, as it has no path left from the carbon to the zinc. If the wires are touched together again, the current once more passes. 
the ordinary electric bell push is merely a means of making and breaking the circuit. If the wire of our imaginary land's end circuit be cut at that distant place, and the two free ends be joined to the two ends of the coil in a needle telegraph instrument, then the current in going from the carbon to the zinc in the battery has to pass through this distant telegraph instrument as its coil has become part of the circuit. The necessity for a complete circuit is therefore quite apparent. While fitting up a telegraph installation on a railway in 1838, Steinheil of Munich noticed that his return wire was broken and that the two ends were put into the earth. The current passed through just as though the wires were joined together. It was soon found that it did not matter how far distant these earth connections were, so that if a telegraph is to be fitted up between London and John O'Groats, a wire is led from the carbon in the battery at London all the way to that northern limit of the Scottish mainland, and they are connected to one end of the telegraph coil. Instead of now bringing a return wire from the other end of the coil right back to the zinc of the London battery, a short wire is simply connected to the earth at the Scottish end, while at the London end another short wire is led from the earth to the zinc in the battery there. At the London end, it would be quite sufficient to fasten the short wire from the zinc to any water pipe in the building and therefore get into contract with the earth. But not finding a similar convenience at the northern house, it would be found necessary to attach the wire to a copper plate and then bury it in the moist subsoil. In figure six, an earth circuit is shown in which both ends are attached to buried plates. It was originally supposed that the current of electricity passed through the earth from the one plate to the other, but it seemed afterwards more reasonable to picture the current as being dissipated in the earth at the one end and fed on at the other end. An analogy portrays the earth as a great ocean, the wire like a pipe with its two free ends dipping into the ocean at far separated points, and the battery is a pump propelling the current along. Whatever mental picture we form, we must remember that the electric current is not a material fluid. There is no difficulty in sending a current over this single wire with its earth circuit, but one is not surprised to learn that when any great natural disturbance takes place in this ether ocean into which the wires are dipping, the current in these earth-connected wires is very appreciably affected, our whole telegraph system being sometimes quite upset during a magnetic storm. End of chapter 6